Well, it's great to see you guys again this morning, and if this is the first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're going to keep going in that this morning. Uh, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we were moving away from the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of where we were the past six to eight weeks uh, or so. And so we're going to be moving now into the parables of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this morning I've kind of uh, just titled this message very, very simply, uh, Listen Well. Listen well, because the parable we're going to be looking at today is essentially just about the difference between listening and then listening in such a way that actually leads to understanding. And so I think we kind of get this point, but there is a major, major difference between hearing and simply listening on a surface level and listening in such a way that actually leads to genuine understanding. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Kat and I had one of our favorite vacations we've ever been on. We got, had a chance to go to Sydney, Australia. And uh, one of our, some of our best friends moved out there for a two-year stint with KPMG. And so we're like, all right, if they're, if they're living on the beach in Australia, then we're definitely going to take advantage of that, go see them. And so we went out there for a little bit of time. And honestly, it was a dream vacation. We loved every bit of it. Uh, only problem is that I've never, ever been able to really understand accents very well at all. Right? Anybody else kind of in that same boat where you're like, I don't get accents whatsoever. You kind of got to have the little subtitles on the TV and that kind of thing. Like, I'm terrible with accents. And so the trip is fantastic, but I'm just butchering conversations left and right with all the, with all the natives that are there that I'm engaging with and that kind of thing. So uh, we go to church one Sunday morning. We go to this little Anglican church on, uh, it's called Manly Beach, which I thought that was kind of funny. Um, Everybody had a little man, I won't do that one, I won't put a bad image there. Um, but we're like on this little beach, this little uh, Anglican church, and we do meet and greet time at that, at that church. I love that, I'm an extrovert, I like people, I'm not trying to hide from people during that time. So anyway, I love that time, and we stand up during the meet and greet time, and, and I go over to the, there's an older couple kind of sitting on the aisle down the, down the ways from me, and I go over to them, I'm like, hey, it's good to meet you, my name is Aaron Armstrong, what's your name? And they're like, oh, I'm so-and-so, and, and, and she stands up and, and she goes, oh. Oh, nice to meet you. Are you a visitor? Are you a visitor? And uh, that's my best impression anyway, I, I can come up with. <laughs> and she's like, are you a visitor? And I, I, was, I was listening to her, and I was like, I'm so confused. I was like, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm not a physicist. I, and I go, are you a physicist? And she looked at me, she's like, what? And she, and she looked at me, she's like, no, I'm not a physicist. Are you a physicist? And I'm like, no, I'm not a physicist. And she goes, okay. And we're like, we just went back and sat down. It was like, big gulps, huh? All right, great. And we kind of like went our different ways. And like my wife and our friends, they die, were dying laughing right there. Like, you idiot. She asked if you were a visitor, a visitor, and that kind of thing. I'm like, ah, that makes a little bit more sense. I didn't know if there was like a physicist convention in town or what. But um, the same thing happened at DTS. It was like opening student week, and we're sitting there with like all the new students getting to know people. And I'm sitting in this room, and there's a... Um, there's a family from China that was brand new to the states that were there, and we're sitting at this table with them getting another story. And uh, I, again, I was having the hardest time in the world understanding what it was. And so, like, I'm zooming in on this guy. He's telling the story, and I'm like, it's, I don't understand what's happening at all. I'm trying to read lips. I'm leaning in. I'm going, what's happening? What is he saying? And, and I'm trying to understand as best as I possibly can. And he kind of wraps up the story, and I'm kind of smiling and nodding and trying to get every bit of it. He wraps it all up, and I'm like, ah. Oh, Praise God. I was like, that is so awesome. I'm so glad that you're here and all this stuff. And I'm not kidding you. Cat, underneath the table, she grabs my knee and she goes, I am so sorry that you've lost your family and that they've abandoned you and that you were imprisoned for your faith and that you've literally lost everything that you own. 
And I'm sitting there going, oh, man. I was like, yeah, I mean, apart from all that, I'm really glad that you're here. And just awful, awful stuff. Like, I, and I think, like, we get that, right? Major, major difference. If you know, like, you talk to me, I, I'm bad at hearing, and, and uh, it, it hurts a lot. And so sometimes in large crowded situations, it's like that. But I think we get this, right? There's a, there's a difference between listening and, and hearing different people and actually listening in such a way that leads to understanding. And the parable that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus is going to say that a lot of us have that exact same problem when it comes to him. Like a lot of us are listening, a lot of us are kind of doing everything we can to read lips, maybe this, that, and the other, and, and we're kind of going through the motions, but we're having a really, really hard time understanding what it is that he's really trying to communicate and what he's trying to move us to and do. And so this morning I want to look at why that is and what are some of the obstacles that keep us from really being able to understand uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit really well. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 13 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to take the entire parable up through verse 23. And so um, if you've been following along this series, again, we're about a year after uh, the Sermon on the Mount at this point in time. We're focusing primarily on the teachings of Christ at this point in the series. And, uh, and so we're about a year after the Sermon on the Mount. That was kind of his big one right there. And what we know about Jesus' teaching is that he loves storytelling, which that's, that is what parables are, right? A parable is essentially a story. It's an analogy that you're looking around and you're relating something that you're seeing in the natural, normal world around you. And you're bringing spiritual principles and spiritual realities to that normal type of a story. So Jesus does this all the time. All in all, there's about 46 different parables that he teaches. And we're not going to try to hit them all. Uh, but we are going to start with this right here in Matthew 13. Because this is going to be affectionately called the parable of all parables. Simply because in it, uh, in addition to kind of talking about listening and hearing and understanding, he's going to be explaining a little bit of why he chooses to speak in parables so much. And so uh, let's go ahead and jump into it starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Can't imagine preaching a sermon from a boat on a lake, people sitting on the shore. Um, anyway, he does that pretty well, so... He tells him many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, which produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, let them listen." And then the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question that probably a lot of us are asking right here. He says, they say, Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? Right? Anybody else asking this question too? Anybody else, let me put it this way. Anybody else kind of the bottom line, give, me, give, it, give it to me straight kind of a person? Like I hate all the metaphors and the riddles. Just tell me what you're trying to tell me and get to the bottom line. Like it's kind of what they're saying here. Why do you speak in so many parables? Why, do you, why don't you just get straight to the point? And so Jesus answers it like this. And he says, the reason I speak in parables, verse 11 is because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Now, that's still kind of confusing, right? Okay, you're kind of going, again, not exactly cut and dry, straight and clear. Right? He says, essentially, the reason I speak in parables is because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, they've been given to you, but not everybody else has them. Right? And, of course, it's still confusing because right, the disciples, they have the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom essentially understanding of who Jesus is at that point in time, yet they still need more understanding. Jesus is going to explain in the different parables here, which is what he's going to do in the rest of this story a uh, little bit later on we're about to get to. Um, on top of that, it's, Jesus is not saying, he's not saying I'm telling these stories so that people remain in the dark and never have spiritual understanding. 
It's just never his heart. He wants people to have spiritual understanding. And so he's not telling parables because he hates these people over here and never wants them to understand anything. There's a little clue about what's going on here in verse 11. He says this. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, they've been given unto you, but not unto them. In other words, what he's saying here is that spiritual understanding is a gift of the Holy Spirit that you and I have to receive. It's not something that you can study enough and receive. It's not something that you can observe enough. It's not anything that you and I can grab hold of in and of our natural state of being, in and of our natural selves. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit that you and I have to actually receive. And I think we kind of get this point a little bit. Like Matthew 16, famous passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he comes to him and he says, okay, so uh, who do people say that I am? And they're like, okay, we, some people say this. And he turns to the disciples and he says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up. And he goes, okay, I, I think that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, okay, Peter, well done. All of your knowledge and insight and wisdom and everything that led you to that understanding. He, he looks at Peter and he says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by your own flesh and blood, uh, but by my Father who is in heaven. Right? Paul's going to say a very, very similar principle here that in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he's going to say, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, like you can be the smartest person on the planet and still be blind to very real spiritual realities that are right there in front of your face. And I think we get this, we, we, again, we see this on a natural realm around us quite a bit. You can be the smartest person on the planet and completely blind to things that are sitting right in front of your face all the time. We do this in sports rivalries a lot. Uh, just take Aggies versus Longhorns, for example. Uh, have you ever known like a, an intelligent Aggie that, or let me put it, an intelligent Longhorn that's like, I mean, have you ever known one of those that are, they're so blinded in their hatred of their rival that they're unwilling to give the other person or the other school or people in that camp any credit for who they actually are? You know what I'm talking about? Like, we, I, when I was a student at A&M, they had this law in College Station where you could not, if you're a business owner, you could not paint your building, your, your place of business orange. You weren't allowed to use that at all. So, like, Whataburger and Home Depot, they're, like, blue and neutral colors, right? Like, that's how much we hated Longhorns and stuff right there. And so, like, you talk to an Aggie, and they're going to th talk about themselves. They're going to think that we're kind of the God's gift to creation, essentially, right? And they're going to believe, okay, Longhorns are essentially the spawn of Satan. And, uh, like, Longhorns are going to have the, the exact same thing. They're going to be like, okay, Aggies are the most obnoxious people on the entire planet, um, and we are God's gift to everybody else. But that's what we do with rivalries, right? We draw this line, intelligent people, both sides. It's not exactly the truth. There's beautiful, great people on both sides of the fence, even though we're completely blind to those realities and unwilling and incapable of giving those kinds of people credit. Uh, we do it with politics all the same, right? Republicans say the same things about Democrats. Democrats say the same things about Republicans. They're always, they're all this, they're never this, they're terrible, they're evil. Each side doing the exact same thing. Like, like Paul's going to say uh, that, that that's what happens to us, right? Intelligent, smart people can be right about so many different things and blind to realities that are right in front of their face. And he's going to say this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's going to say that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that we're not able to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, before you and I were enlightened or awakened by the Holy Spirit and come to understanding about who Jesus Christ actually is, uh, we were blinded by the enemy. That's what he's done. Before Christ, we were blind to the beauty of the gospel. We were blind to the beauty of who he actually is. And so, yes, 
we absolutely need the Holy Spirit to come and to bring us understanding because apart from his help, like we are completely blind to the spiritual realities that are going on around us every single day. And what happens is when, when we're in the middle of that blindness, many of us become hostile towards people that are on the other side of it. And so that's kind of why Jesus is speaking here in parables. Since spiritual understanding is a gift of the Holy Spirit that must be granted and must be received, uh, and Jesus is speaking to mixed crowds, some of which may have this understanding, many of which do not, parables allow the spiritually enlightened person to continue to be fed and to be able to gain the nourishment that's needed from that message, while at the exact same time, the spiritually blind person, uh, they may get curious uh, at the very, very least, they may be interested because anybody can follow a good story, right? Uh, and, and meanwhile, they're going to be listening and maybe gathering certain things while not the entire thing, while not becoming hostile all along the way. You remember this about Jesus' ministry. Timing was everything for him. Why aren't you more upfront and clear? Why didn't you come out of the womb saying, I'm the Christ, the Messiah? Timing was everything for Christ. He had to accomplish certain things so that he can move to the cross, and in that time, he, uh, that he could actually make his sacrifice sufficient. And so that's what's taking place here uh, and why he's choosing to speak in parables. He wants all to come to understanding. Uh, nevertheless, this is, this is the way that he chooses to go about it. Verse 12, he's going to explain this. He's going to say, whoever has will be given more, okay? And they're going to have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. In other words, People who have spiritual understanding will be given more. People who have the ability to listen well, to understand the things of God. We're not talking about material possessions. We're not talking about the rich get richer, uh, the greedy get greedier, and that kind of a thing. We're talking about uh, people who own and can get spiritual understanding and listen well will be given more spiritual understanding. And that will determine your ability to continue to grow in that understanding. This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus says. And then he starts quoting Isaiah. Those seeing, they still don't see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll ever be hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and then turn, and I would heal them. So the good news of what he's saying in this parable is that like, healing is actually available to the spiritually deaf, to, to those who are hard of hearing. A healing is actually available to those who are hard of hearing, but here it is. You actually have to be willing to understand from your heart and not just your head. Understanding, he says right here in this text, understanding is something that begins right here in the heart. It's not just a head game or anything like that. It begins right here in the heart. And so what he's saying is that the quality of your heart will lead to, under, it's the quality of your heart that will lead to understanding and determine your ability to grow. And you got to understand, church, like when, when the Bible's talking about your heart, and, and we talk about our heart, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength, we're not just talking about emotionally. We're not talking about fanaticism or sensationalism or emotionalism or anything like that, although it may engage your emotions and probably should. Uh, it, it should. Uh, we're not talking about that very simply. Like the, the heart is essentially the central part of who you actually are. It's that place of who you are that, that captures all of your values, all of your greatest desires, all of the things that you genuinely love the very, very most, uh, which will ultimately determine and dictate how you then live. I mean, that's what he's saying here in this text. Yes, spiritual understanding, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit that must be received. But the problem in verse 15 is that apart from his spirit's leading and that kind of thing, I, our hearts are hardened and callous to the things of God. I mean, that's what he just said. I, I, they, unless they're going to see with their eyes and hear with their, uh, their ears and understand with their hearts, I won't heal them. 
In other words, it's, it's not a knowledge problem and it's not a logic problem that's right here. It's the quality of your heart that's at that's question here in this parable. I love the way Adam Clark talks about this. He was an old Puritan scholar. And uh, he, said, he said it like this. He says, the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. The same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. You ever heard this quote before or something, kind of variation of it before? It, it, it's a great way of just kind of saying, but it, essentially what he's saying is the difference between hearing and understanding is not the amount of exposure to the sun that you have. It's not even necessarily what the ch sun chooses to provide. It's the quality of the material that the sun chooses to shine upon. And, and it's exactly what Jesus is right here is saying right here. Church, like it's the quality of the soil. It's the quality of your heart. It's the place of your heart that will lead to understanding and determine your ability to grow. I mean, some people have hearts um, that are ready to bow at the thro throne of God and say, God, I'm willing to receive whatever it is that you want to give me. Some of us, even apart from Christ, have been responding to, or before Christ, have been responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he's been providing this softening, and we come to this place and we're willing to say, okay, I'm ready to receive. God, would you, anything that you want to throw my way, I'm willing to take it. And others are kind of sitting there kind of saying, okay, we're listening to the gospel and kind of going like, I could really, really care less. My hearts are just calloused to the things of God. And whatever you say, it's just bouncing right off and going absolutely nowhere. And so Jesus tells this parable right here so that you and I can, can reflect on different conditions of the heart and why it is that many of us have a hard time hearing and actually understanding the things of God and following him in all of his different ways. And so the first thing he says in verse 18 is this. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. He, he actually explains it for us. And he says, whenever anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and he snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is, this is the seed that's sown along the path. And so this is the seed that may or may not even make it to the soil. It's kind of along the path. Maybe a lot of it's on the concrete or the rock or something like that, and it's not really getting into the soil or anything like that. But essentially, we're just going to call this the hardened heart. This is the person, this is the heart that could care less about the things of God. Uh, this is the heart that as soon as seed is scattered and they hear the word of God, the enemy, it says, comes and snatches away uh, what the Holy Spirit was trying to sow. And immediately, it never, ever takes root. And so um, it's the hardened heart, essentially. Uh, I'll never forget a number of years ago when I was first starting here, I went out to Indiana to be a part of Revive Indiana with the Martins and uh, Brian Radabaugh and uh, a few people from the church. We went out to Indiana. I was out with a group of people and we engaged this, uh, this man, and uh, I think it was his wife that was probably sitting on the porch of their house. And uh, we went out there, and we were talking with him, and kind of immediately as we engaged him, he kind of put the hand up. He was a little resistant to things, but we started talking, and we kind of, there was some softening that took place. And, uh, and so he was like, okay, I, I'll, I'll listen to kind of what we want to talk about. And so if you've never been a part of Revive, all we do is we go and we pray with people. Um, we hand him this little Bible, we have him read a few verses, and we just say, look, just want you to understand what it is that we believe and what the Bible says about salvation and God and everything else. So we have him read a few verses, and then we talk about them. And it was crazy to see how, as this conversation was unfolding, uh, the hardness of his heart began to, it seemed like it began to soften a little bit. He began to ask questions, and he began to engage in a little, a little bit. By the time we got to point four, which is essentially that salvation is a gift of God's grace that's received through faith, you will not believe the amount of distractions that came on the scene at that time. Like, I'm not kidding you. We start talking. He begins to get interested. And all of a sudden, these kids just start, they, they open up the door. They run out on the porch, and they jump on mom and dad. And they're pulling at him. Come inside. We're bored. We need help, this, that, and the other. At the same time, another truck pulls down the street. 
This is a truck driving, it's a massive jacked up truck with a giant Confederate flag, screaming racial epithets at the, at the, uh, at the girl that we were there with, um, screaming these things and blaring their music. Um, another person came off, I think there was like a backfire or a shotgun shot or something in the neighborhood that was really not right, whatever it was. But like, I'm not kidding you, as soon as things began to get, get, to get serious, I mean, all of these distractions came into play. And what we're seeing, what Jesus is saying is, like, that's how the enemy operates. A lot of us have this heart that's kind of sitting there kind of going, I'm resistant to the things of God. And then all of a sudden it begins to be sown and the seed begins to scatter. And just a little tiny bit, that person begins to be, get curious about the things of God. And in the middle of that place, the enemy comes and tries to steal and destroy and kill whatever it is that the Holy Spirit's sowing in that place. Now, typically this kind of a person, the hardened heart person, um, is not typically going to show up in the church. This is not the person that's kind of, that's, that's naturally very curious. They're not very far away. They kind of know, hey, my hand's up. I could care, don't talk to me about Jesus and that kind of a thing. Um, on the off chance that they do show up in the church and they, maybe they're doing a, a loved one a favor, maybe it's a holiday, Easter, Christmas, something like that, and they're kind of here or something. This is the person that's going to be hearing the word of God and they're going to come in with their, all the defenses up and uh, they're going to be hearing and they're going to be listening. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's going to begin to soften, and he's going to begin to teach, and he's going to begin to instruct. But almost as soon as that takes place, their mind is going to be filled with distractions about, like, okay, what are we going to be eating for lunch today? Why in the world is Chick-fil-A not open on Sunday? Right? Like, are, are the Cowboys going to win another game in the playoffs, or is this going to be, like, every other year of my life? Right? And they're going to be wondering, and like all of these distractions are going to fill their mind. And so it's not necessarily that the enemy is going to come and start flooding your mind with blatantly evil thoughts and things of that nature. It's just that the enemy is going to come and try to distract you from the things that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach and try to sow into your life. I love the way J.D. Greer said it. He said this. He said, distractions send more people to hell than doubt ever will. Distractions send more people to hell than doubt ever will. You want to know why? It's because the enemy will do anything and everything in his power to keep you from hearing whatever it is the Holy Spirit's trying to sow in your life. And if doubt's not really your thing, if that, if that intellectual doubt's not really your thing, all he needs to do is come and just fill your mind with other good things that keep you from ever circling back around and getting to the most important thing that you need to question in your life. And so that's the hard heart. The first one is this very simply, I, I, I don't really care about the things of God. My hand is up. Uh, in a lot of ways, if I begin to get a little bit interested, all of a sudden, boom, distractions come and they flood my mind and my heart and I'm not considering it anymore. The second kind of heart he talks about is verse 20. It says, the seed falling on rocky ground, it refers to someone who hears the word of God and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short amount of time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word of God, they quickly fall away. Okay, so now we're getting into a group of people that at least have a little bit of interest in the things of God, right? These are people that on the surface, they get really excited about Jesus. They like him. They even love him. They have an emotional reaction. They probably made a bunch of commitments at some point in time. Um, and the, the beauty of this parable is, as we're going to be going through this, a lot of us are going to be kind of going, we're meant to reflect on these different soils and these hearts and say, okay, where am I right now? And the beauty of this parable is we're going to look back at these things and kind of say, okay, I, I can see when I was this age, like I was definitely that hard heart. When I was in the high school years or when I was in the junior high years, I was definitely this shallow heart that he's talking about right here. Like I'll, I'll never forget the shallow heart. Um, it was probably my sophomore year in high school. Uh, I just started walking with the Lord at that time. Uh, a bunch of my friends and, and 
uh, people at the school. Nobody else was. There, were, there weren't many people that were walking with the Lord at that time. And, um, and so there was this weird Monday that happened. I showed up at school, and about like 20 different people, kind of my friends that were the, they threw the parties. They had the drugs. They had the alcohol. They had the stories and, and, uh, and loved telling everybody about it kind of a deal. Monday morning shows up, and they're all wearing these Jesus shirts. And I was like, what in the world happened this weekend? And they're like, it was awesome. There was this youth group. They had this big retreat. They went out there. They had this rally. Everyone got saved. We were all hyped up on Jesus and stuff. I mean, they were speaking the lingo. I mean, they were wearing the T-shirts with the little fish and everything. And, I mean, they were pumped. And I'm sitting there kind of going, what in the world is happening at my school? This is incredible. I never would have expected any of this to happen. Well, sure enough, it, it lasted about a week, right? It lasted about a week. Uh, I'm not kidding you. The next Monday comes around, and the exact same people, they're like, the shirts aren't there. Not that the shirt does not matter at all. Uh, but um, it is, the stories are completely different. Here's what happened this weekend. Here's the party. Here's, the dr- here's what I did when I was high. Here's all the different things like that. And I remember sitting there kind of going, okay, I was like, I was so confused of what happened. And I grabbed one of my friends, and I was like, hey, you got to explain this to me. Because a week ago, it was a completely different story. Like, what actually happened? And I'll never forget, he, he looked at me, and he goes, you know what? Honestly, I was just there because the girls were. And he goes, honestly, I think that we were just kind of all hyped up in the moment, and I think we were just having an emotional reaction to what was taking place right there. And I really appreciated the, the, I, I appreciated the honesty in that moment because he was just acknowledging, like, this was not a legitimate thing. I was responding to the emotion of the moment, and Jesus is saying that's evidence, it's symptomatic of a shallow heart. Like, there's a lot of us that respond sometimes in emotional ways, in emotional um, and emotional reactions and stuff to things, and, and there's no actual root that's able to grow deep into your life and able to sustain you when things get really, really difficult. And, and so, like this happened, a lot of us are going to be looking at this and kind of saying, okay, this was my youth, right? This is my youth. This is the time when I, I responded like that, and I came down and I did a million different altar calls and things like that, but nothing actually took place. One of the things that I always pray for our students I'm always praying for our students that at some point in time during our junior high, high school years, that you're going to have this aha moment where you very, very specifically detach from your parents' faith. And you're saying, I don't care what my parents believe. I don't care what my friends believe. I don't care if this youth group's here tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. Like, I'm with Jesus no matter what. Like, I don't care what my friends at school are doing. I don't care if I'm the last person standing, that you are sitting there kind of saying, okay, this is my faith and this is my faith alone. And what Jesus is saying is that shallow faith and shallow hearts, they're all over the place. They respond to a call. They get caught up in a million different things that are not the truth of the gospel. And they look good for a season until the time of difficulty and the time of oppression uh, or, or trials or tribulations or anything like that spring up because it actually does not have real roots. For others of us, we're kind of looking at this, kind of going, okay, okay, the emotionalism, it's not really my thing, okay? I've kind of passed those days. I'm not responding to these altar calls every other five seconds. But for some of us, the emotional response is, um, is really about the approval that you gain from other people more so than any approval that you may get from the Lord. And so it's a different type of emotional response. It's still not exactly genuine. It's still this, hey, I want to be approved by the people that are around me. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Here's what he says. He's rebuking a bunch of religious leaders, and he says this. He says, I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. Speaking to religious people here, you don't have the love of God in your heart. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in their name, you accept them. How can you believe since you accept glory from other people, but don't seek the glory that comes from the one and only true God? 
In other words, like how in the world can you actually believe if the thing that you care about most is the praise and approval of your friends, the praise and approval of your companions, the praise and approval of culture? How in the world can you genuinely believe when that is the thing that your heart most desires more so than the approval you may get from the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit? It's not even a genuine faith here. Um, It's why many of us did thrive in the high school years when we had a youth group to respond to and then walked away when we were in college. You know what I'm talking about? Like for many of us, like we were great under our parents' home. We were great in the youth group as long as we had friends. We were great as long as we had the accountability. We went off to college and boom, all of that stuff is gone. And we kind of realized, okay, well, it was really about the friendship. It was really about the companionship. It was really about the fun and games and the safety that that provided. And very little of it actually had to do with a legitimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and any genuine affection for him. And before we start thinking this is a youth thing, church, this happens in adulthood all the time. I mean, for a lot of us, the church is just a bigger youth group. And we do the exact same thing. Barna came out with a study a little while ago talking about the trends in Christianity in America today. And here's typically what happens for the person who came to faith early on, grew up in a Christian home. Uh, They grow up in a Christian home. They do the youth group thing. Things are going pretty well. Uh, they've got all the different things around them that are pretty, pretty strong and helpful. They go off to college, and all of a sudden, things are really, really difficult. They're going to realize, okay, not everybody believes the same things. And I've got professors that are trying to detract me from my faith. And I've got a million temptations that are around me now, and I've got no parents to crack the whip anymore. And all of a sudden, this is really, really difficult. And so they end up walking away from the faith. They go into young adult singlehood, and we play the game for a long time. We enjoy ourselves. We engage in a million different things because we won't have that opportunity once you get married, right? The trends are that you're getting married later and later. It's probably around 29, 30, something like that. You get married. Clock's ticking. You start having babies. And as soon as the babies take place, um, you say, okay, it's about time that we go back to the church again because our kids are going to need a little bit of morality. And that's what Barna is saying are the trends that are happening today. We're coming back and we're treating this gathering here like, like, uh, like good things, community is a beautiful thing, and I want to be very, very careful about what I'm saying here. We're not saying that that is a bad thing. I do hope and pray Caleb is going to grab hold of community and have, and have morality and things of that nature. But we treat our community in a lot of different ways in an emotional way to get a lot of different things from it that aren't primarily this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that there's a lot of different symptoms of a shallow heart that we may not actually be paying attention to. There's a lot of different symptoms of this reaction to Jesus that don't actually have to do with him and that are going to actually be very, very tiny, frail roots that aren't able to sustain you when difficulty comes and when temptation comes and when opposition comes your way. There's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of different things. Some people treat that about they love to learn and know about the things of God and have absolutely no desire to do the things of God. It's an emotional reaction. Like I'm a student. I love learning about different things. I love being smarter than other people. And a lot of people respond to him and to uh, the gospel. We hear things. We say, I want to learn all about this so that I can master it and be better than everybody else. I have no genuine desire to actually do the things of God. Uh, I'll never forget meeting this guy a number of years ago. And we were out on the street and we were talking about the gospel and stuff. And his story was, he said, you know, I started out being a Christian. He goes, I, I, used to, he goes, I started to be a Christian, but I, I don't think I am anymore. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. I was like, how do you start being a Christian? And he kind of explained it to me, and he said, well, back in the day, I, you know, a buddy of mine came and shared, shared Jesus with me. I got really curious. I went to the youth group. I did the camp thing. I, I, I started reading. I started studying. 
And then he goes, I actually went to Bible college because I was a really good student and I loved learning so much. And I learned all about these different things. But the problem is, essentially, as I began to learn more and more and more, I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. And so I, I was like, I, and so he goes, basically, I walked away. And I asked him on that. I was like, okay, so what was it that you were learning that you didn't want to do? And he goes, well, largely two things. Number one, I hate proselytizing and the idea that anyone would want to share their faith with anybody else and expect them to hope them believe. So I was like, basically, you hate this whole interaction we're having, right? And so uh, he, he laughed about that, but he's, but he's like, yeah, kind of. Um, and then number two, he goes, I hate the Bible's conservative sec sexual ethic. He goes, I, he's like, I can't follow that. I can't buy any of that nonsense. And I go, okay, help me understand this. You love Jesus, right? He's like, oh, Jesus is awesome. All right, and, and I was like, you believe the Bible? He's like, I, I believe the Bible. And I was like, so you actually believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that we were lost and dead in our sins, and God in his infinite love sent Christ to come and to live the sinless life we could not live, to willingly go to the cross, to suffer, bleed, and die, three days later to rise again, proving he is who he says he is, that any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith may have life. You believe all that stuff? He's like, yeah, I think that's probably true. And I was like, and you are willing to look at that God who came and did all that for you and say, you know what, I simply don't want to follow you. And he goes, now that you put it like that, it sounds kind of silly, but yeah, essentially, that's, that's about it. I just don't want it. And church, what Jesus is saying is like there's a million different symptoms of shallow faith. People that respond in a very positive way. There's genuine affection. We love Jesus. We probably even have the Jesus doll on our shelf at some point in time. There's a lot of affection for the things of Jesus that have no roots and that aren't able to sustain you during the difficult times of trial and temptation and suffering that are still to come, especially students, as I'm looking at you, knowing you're about to head to college, and those temptations are going to come your way. Is your faith genuinely real, or are you what Jesus is talking about right here, living in the shallow, emotional expression of faith that a lot of us still continue to live in today? And again, the, this whole parable, this whole thing is church, like, where am I? What, what, is the, what is the status of my heart? Am I living there right now? Like, is my faith actually about Jesus or is it about a lot of other good things that come along with this Christian community that are here? Is it actually about him or is it about the friendships or about the community or about being liked or about a million other great things? And that's what he's having us wrestle with right here. He gets to the third one here in verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word of God. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. We're just going to call this one the divided heart because, again, it seems like we're getting a little bit of a pro progression. There seems to be a little bit more uh, genuine affection for the things of God here. There seems to be uh, a plant that's at least there. The problem with this is, though, that it's a divided heart. It's a heart that says, okay, I want the things of God. I love Jesus, and I think that's genuinely real. I'm here. I'm going through some of these disciplines, but the problem is like, my heart's just divided. I, 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 I'm, I'm concerned with the things of the world. I'm concerned about keeping up with the Joneses. I'm concerned about, you know, where, how I'm going to pay for this next luxury vacation. I'm concerned about this happening over here. I'm concerned about sickness. I'm concerned about this. I'm distracted by a million other things. Jesus is going to say, uh, you're carried away by the deceitfulness of your wealth. And church, let's not be naive. Living in North Dallas around here, like no matter how you compare to the others here in North Dallas, we're still among the most financially stable, financially successful people on the entire planet. And what he's saying here is that there is a deceitfulness that comes along with our wealth that makes you and I believe that we can be self-sufficient and okay. 
Like there's a deceitfulness that comes along with all of our education, the number of degrees and letters next to our name, the amount that we have, the amount that we accomplish that makes us think, you know what, I'm pretty good on my own. And he's saying that there's a deceitfulness that comes along there, and you start believing that. And so you may say, and you may really believe and want the things of God. The reality is that your heart is completely divided, and you're worrying about the things of life, and you're deceived by the deceitfulness of your wealth. And the problem with that lifestyle is, is that you're completely fruitless all along the way. The problem with that life is that in the middle of those good demands, in, in the middle of those good motivations, I want these things You're so divided and you're so torn that you're going to go all the days of your life and not produce any genuine fruit or do any of the things that God has called us to do. I'll never forget growing up in, um, I was born in Florida, still have family there. My grandmother was there. That's why I'm a huge Gator fan still, uh, that whole deal. But growing up, we'd always take these vacations to Florida. I loved going out there in the summertime and kind of early spring, I guess. We'd drive through there. There was all these orange farms, right, and you can go by these citrus farms, and you can pick these oranges off the trees, and I'm not kidding you, like, there's nothing like Florida oranges. They're just, they're fresh, they're perfect, they, they're sweet, they're awesome, and so we'd go there, and we'd go to these farms, and we'd pick them, and they were the best of the best. We'd go back to grandma's house, and um, I remember being so disappointed in grandma's house all the time, because grandma had an orange tree in her place, but like, we'd go there, and her orange tree was just dead. She didn't care for it. She didn't water it. She didn't try to prune it or do any of the things you're supposed to do. And so we'd go back to Grandma's house, and I'd be staring at this orange tree. And, and, and the only thing that would be on there is this shriveled up green little thing that's not even an orange, right? You're like, I don't know what that is. And, and we'd be over there, and I'd be like, I remember looking at her one time. And I'm like, Grandma, what is this? Like, what is this thing? Like, what's the point of having this thing here if it's not going to produce any fruit? Like, the whole point of this tree right here. It's to make oranges. It's why it's here. I, I can't climb it. I can, it's not even a shade tree. I can't go lay underneath it or anything like that. Birds can't sit in it. Like there's, it's doing nothing. The whole point of this tree is to go and bear fruit and to produce oranges that people are able to enjoy. What's the point of it if it's not going to do that? Church, like what Jesus is saying is like we were created with a purpose here. And a divided heart, people that come and that are affectionate about some and then affectionate about a million other distractions over here, it produces this life that goes all of our days and is completely fruitless along the way. Paul's going to say that we are Christ's workmanship, that you and I have been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which God's already prepared in advance for you and I to walk in. In other words, while you were in your mother's womb, He was already preparing opportunities, preparing a mission field, preparing relationships, preparing encounters, preparing venues, preparing all these different things that you and probably only you would be able to walk in so that you could go and do these good deeds all for the glory of his name. And granted, listen to me, church, like Paul's going to say salvation is a gift of God's grace that's received through faith. Don't get this confused. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is a gift of God's grace that's received through faith, not of yourselves. You didn't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. Nevertheless, the very next verse that he says is that we are his workmanship, created to do these different things. And what Jesus is saying is that, is that there's some of us that come and we have these affections for the things of God, but it's simply divided. And as a result, we're going to go all of our days and we'll probably be in the church and we'll probably cling to the cross at some point in time. But it's going to be completely fruitless. And we're going to be like an orange tree sitting in Florida that's producing nothing. Meanwhile, there's children to raise up and to pass the faith on to the next generation. There's friends and there's neighbors 
that are dying to hear the gospel and they don't even know it. And there's opportunities in the church to serve over and over and over again. And we're going to be so consumed by the deceitfulness of wealth and this self-sufficiency and this contentness that our wealth has provided us that says, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm good. I'm satisfied by what I've got. I don't need anything else. And we'll never give our lives to the purpose that God has called us to. It's a devastating reality that a lot of us may be living in today. And church, the beauty of this parable is that we're not supposed to listen to it and remain depressed. The beauty of this parable is that there's a way out. That there's healing to be had. That we can actually turn, that we can respond and receive again from the Holy Spirit. And that, and that some of us, are you're there. You're looking back and you're kind of going, look, I, I'm over here. But I, I remember when I was the hard heart. I remember when I was shallowly responding to the claims of the gospel. Like I remember when I was completely divided in all these different kinds of things. Like I remember those different deals. And what Jesus is saying is that divided heart, it just kills your ability to do what you're created to do. I love the way Tim Keller talks about this. He's talking about it. He says, you know, there's a lot of different college students that grew up in his church. And uh, they come back to him and they say, okay, they say, Dr. Keller, um, we're, I think I'm ready to walk away from the faith. I just don't believe in the things of God anymore. And he goes, this happens to me all the time. We, they got a larger church there in New York. And he goes, students come back and they say that. And he goes, I always have one question for them. And he goes, the question that I ask him is, who have you started sleeping with? And he goes, he goes, well, he goes, they're always taken back by that, of course. Like, nobody's expecting that kind of a question. But the reality is that about 99% of the time, there's, there's an answer. Church, you want to know why? It's because a divided and unrepentant heart will always lead to, the, to a divided and fruitless faith. That's what it does. Hebrews says it. He warns us. He says, let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that we won't be deceived by the heart by the, we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. It's what takes place. We continue to entertain it. We continue to live divided lives. And little by little, it numbs us to the things of God, to the point that we go 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of our life profess, professing faith in Jesus Christ. And essentially, we're that orange tree sitting in Florida that's producing no fruit whatsoever. It's one of the most tragic things that we see in the church today. It continues with one more, because this is the hope of this whole parable. Verse 23 says, but the seed that falls on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. In other words, church, this is the good stuff. This is the good soil. This is the person that's ready to receive whatever it is from the Lord. This is the person who listens to the truth of the gospel and is never the same again. Because what happens is the word of God begins to take root inside of your soul. And it's not like the rocky soil or the path or anything else. Like the word of God, it begins to, to take genuine root deep inside of your soul. And it begins to change the way that you think about things. And then it doesn't just stay up here. It just continues to move down and to provide understanding from your heart to the point that it begins to change the, the things that you value and the things that you love and the things that you're desiring above all else. And then it just doesn't stay just inside. It continues to move outward. And it begins to change the way that you see other people. And the way that you love people who are different from you. And the way that you love people who disagree with you. And the way that you love people who vote differently from you. And the way that you love people that went to that rival school of yours. And the way that you give sacrificially from a place of genuine joy rather than begrudging obedience. 
And it begins to change the way that you serve from a place of joy and a sense of uh, understanding God's purpose and the mission that's going on around here. It begins to change the way that you go home and you love your spouse and you love your kids, even when it's really, really difficult. And it begins to change the way that you treat your coworkers and you stop getting so quickly annoyed with them, but you start inviting them to lunch and you start caring for them and you start listening to them more than you start teaching them and telling them everything they need to be doing. And it begins to change the way that you think about evangelism because you're realizing, okay, this isn't something that I can selfishly hold on to. Like the hope of the gospel, this offer of salvation, not only now but for all of eternity, this isn't something that any person in their right mind can contain and keep to themselves. And it begins to change the way that you think and the ways that you value different things. And you begin to share your faith for the very first time to the point that the God's word has taken root in your life and produced a crop in your life 30, 60, or 100 fold. Church, that's what understanding does. It just changes everything about your life. One of my favorite testimonies is, was told in Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle. It's about a guy named William Borden. I shared a, a little bit of this story a couple years ago, but I didn't share all of it. And I love his testimony. But essentially, William Borden uh, grew up in the early 1900s. He was heir to the Borden Milk Empire. Are we familiar building Borden Milk? You can imagine in the 1900s, they were among the most uh, powerful, wealthy families in the entire world at that time. So you can imagine growing up in that home, you have every luxury you could possibly want in your life. Uh, you're not lacking for anything. On top of that, Borden was this, uh, he was a good-looking and charismatic person that was very good with people. Uh, he actually graduated from Yale in 1909. Uh, he was set to inherit the, the, Borden, uh, the Borden Empire, um, except for the fact that when he was in high school, uh, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it literally changed everything about his life. Uh, the stories are that he goes on, and even as a high schooler, he refused to buy, purchase a car. He could purchase anything that he wanted to, but he refused to purchase a car um, and instead ended up giving about hundreds of thousands of dollars away to the poor and families who were in need. Can you imagine doing that in high school? Like, can you imagine like having that kind of a, a love for the Lord Jesus Christ? You're sitting there and say, okay, hundreds of thousand dollars as a high schooler. Like I thought, I remember thinking that $5 was big when I was 16, just giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, he goes off to Yale. God uses him to bring sweeping revival at Yale. He, uh, he starts an organization that's caring for the poor, the impoverished, and the overlooked. Uh, he starts a weekly Bible study. Nearly 1,000 Yale students of the 1,300 that were enrolled would attend this Bible study on a weekly basis. And so he's coming to the end of his Yale time, and, um, and it's shortly after graduation. And all of a sudden, you, can, you know this, like God's been doing this thing in his life, and he's simply going like, milk isn't really my thing. And so he comes and he has this conversation with his parents, and he tells them, you know, um, that the Lord's been leading me to go to the mission field. I'm not going to inherit the empire. I'm selling everything that I have, and I'm going to go become a missionary in China for the rest of my days telling people about Jesus Christ. And you know how that went over, right? The family's sitting there kind of going, you're crazy. All of his friends, everybody's going to go, you're crazy to give up all this stuff. Why would you do that? And uh, nevertheless, that's what he does. And so he goes back, and he was wrestling with that decision for quite a while. And so he goes back, and one night he's praying through this thing, and he opens up his Bible. And on the inside of his Bible, he just writes two words. It says, no reserves. And he writes out on the, end of his, on the inside of his Bible, and it's simply to say there's no reservations about this decision and this calling that I'm responding to in my life. So he goes on, and shortly after graduation, he goes to seminary. He starts to head off to China for the mission field. He stops off in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, for about four months is what he's supposed to stay there for so that he can do language training school. As soon as he gets there, um, he gets this letter from his father that informs him essentially he's been cut off from the family. 
and he will not have any future opportunity to come back and to reclaim the role that he would have in that empire should his mind change in the future. So you, again, once again, as a young student you can, or a young adult, you can imagine again what it's like to receive that kind of rejection from your family. And, and so he goes back and he's kind of mourning the loss of how his family is responding to this whole thing. And he grabs his Bible again, he opens it up, and he writes two more words on the inside of his Bible. And it simply says, no retreat, no retreat. No reserves, no retreat. In other words, I'm heading to China. I'm following the call of God no matter what's going on back home and what I've got waiting for me right there. Within a week of receiving that letter from his parents, while still there in Cairo preparing to be a missionary, William Borden contracted spiral meningitis and he quickly died at the age of 25. Right around that time, all of his friends and family, they're, they're looking at his life and they're mourning, they're weeping, they're wrestling with God. I don't understand this. Why would such a young, vibrant, a passionate, a faithful person be taken at such an early age? They're lamenting it and they're saying, what a wasted life this actually was. God could have done so many things through such a life. But what I love about what Alcorn does is he makes the point that it's not how William Borden saw his life. The story goes that it was in the days just before he passed away, one of his friends came to his bedside and asked him if there was anything that he wanted them to communicate to his family. And at that point in time, Borden couldn't really speak. He was so weak and he was just about to pass away. But he grabbed his Bible and he opened it up and he pointed to two more words that he'd written in the previous, in, in, in the previous week. And those two words were very simply, no regrets. No regrets. And that was it. He took his Bible and he pointed to those three words which really summarized his heart and how he felt about what God had called him to do in his life. No reserves, no reservations, no retreat, and no regret. Shortly after that, he passed away. His friends ended up burying his body there in Cairo, Egypt, in this dusty old field uh, away from family and everybody else. And they wrote this description about his life on his tombstone. It simply says this. It says, a man in Christ, he arose and he forsook all and he followed him, kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints, in honor preferring other people. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Church, it's a good soil. It's the good heart. It's the readiness and the willingness to say, God, whatever it may be, whatever it is that you're saying, whatever it is you're saying to me in 2019, it's honestly of you. I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to embrace and understand. I'm laying down. I'm, not, I'm letting go of the hardness of my heart, the shallowness, maybe the division that's going on in there. Whatever that you have for me in 2019, I'm willing to hold on to it. I'm willing to understand and I'm willing to go. God, would you just give it to me? Church, the question of this parable right here is very clear. Like, which heart are you? Which heart are you? Which soil defines how you typically respond to the truth of the gospel and what he's trying to say to you? And the reality and beauty of this parable is that we don't have to stay in the place that he's, re that he's revealing to you today. The reality is that, that years from now, you can look back and say, like, I remember when I was that hardened person, and I remember when I was that shallow person, and I remember when I was that divided heart that was trying to have it all and trying to balance everything myself. And I'm walking now in the good soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving everything and understanding everything that he's bringing my way. 
Church, my hope and prayer as I think about myself and our church for 2019 is that this would be a year where God's, root, where God's word begins to take root in the good soil of your heart. And that together you and I would be a church that's willing to listen and embrace uh, everything that God is telling us to do and understand this year. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.